Well, this, this is called an iPhone. And uh, it's very popular, as you know. And I want to suggest to you that the iPhone, in one way, has kept many, many couples from arguing since there was a GPS as part of the iPhone. Let me tell you why. Uh, before the iPhone, uh, for example, we would be out. And uh, we'd be going somewhere. And I would be lost, but I didn't want to admit it. So I would just kind of fake it until we got there. Now the iPhone, all guesswork is gone. But we'd be out. And so, you know, men, just men do not like to admit they're lost. Um, my standard line is, I am Daniel Boone's great, 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 great grandson, which I am, by the way. I don't get lost. But the old adage is that why did the children of Israel wander for 40 years in the desert? Answer, Moses wouldn't stop and ask for directions. But that's not true, but that's just the sun. So, so the iPhone. So before the advent of the iPhone, the story goes that a man and his wife flew into New Mexico, the western end of Texas, and they had to drive straight west for, for 300 miles to get to their destination. I mean, in that part of the world, if you've ever been there, everything is flat and wide open, and you can't, I mean, the roads are just straight as an arrow because there's nothing between this point and that point except you know, land and prairie dogs. And so there they land, and the guy's in the, he's driving the husband, and he starts, he starts driving, and the wife, as she's sitting there, notices that the sun seems to be receding on the right-hand side of the car. She says, oh, we're supposed to go on west. He said, yeah, we're going west. I'll get us there. And she says, oh, okay. 30 minutes later, it's come down a little bit more. It's pretty obvious it's in the west. She said, are you sure we're going west? Yes, trust me, dear, we're going west. He says, and 30 minutes later, the sun is about to dip on the rise. He says, she says, you know, I, I, the, the, the sun's over here. He says, trust me. He said, just write this down. In this part of the country, the sun sets in the north. He wouldn't admit he's wrong. A lot of times we're that way about life. In Proverbs chapter 14, this is what the scripture says, verse 12. It says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So, so often we're going down this road and, and, and we're not listening to the voice of God and it leads to destruction. The famous passage about the inspiration of the Bible and authority of the Bible is in this second letter written to Timothy by Paul. And it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So, so not, not just doctrine, which is very important, but, but it, it teaches us the way we should go. With the end result being in verse 17 that says this, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I want to be equipped for every good work. I want to be complete in Christ. I want, I want to be able to look at life with wisdom and make good decisions. And the Bible says that happens as I think wisely, as I understand the scripture. Proverbs chapter 5 is a great chapter to meditate on when it comes to sexual purity. And in chapter, Proverbs 5, it talks about a young man who threw caution to the wind, and then this is how he reflects in life as a middle-aged man. Verse 11, he says, at the end of your life, after your sexual promiscuity, you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. And you will say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. 
I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to their instruction. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. He says, I, I didn't listen. I didn't heed. I had a stiff neck. I put my fingers in my ears. And therefore, everyone around me, the assembled congregation, can see how my life is coming to a frightful end. So the Reformation happened in the 1500s. It was a recovery of the gospel. A guy named Martin Luther kind of kicked it off in 1517. We celebrate the Reformation because it celebrated the gospel. But about 100 years after that, there's a little phrase that was produced that I think about frequently, and it goes like this. The church reformed, or loving the doctrine of the scripture, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ, the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. In other words, the Bible changes and directs and guides us. So we want to be people of the scripture. That's why we come to this little book of Jude. And I'm just one chapter. It's right before the book of Revelation. I'm going to cover it just in a couple of weeks. But, but Jude is addressing error in the church and what's going on in the church of his day. And I've been preaching on the theme of kind of an internal working statement that we want to be broken people who treasure Jesus. And as we treasure Jesus, we give ourselves to four values I mentioned last week. One is the authority of the Bible. Number two is we believe in the importance of the family and community. Number three, we want to serve our people, serve our community, and serve our world primarily by preaching the gospel and we want to make disciples. We, we just want to have this little thought that we can just tell people, we can even write it down on, on a napkin over a cup of coffee. This is what we are about. But I'm covering the authority of the Bible today out of Jude. So we started Jude last week and Jude made, makes the, the bridge that before we can stand, we've got to know who we are. And so in the first two verses, Jude says, this is who you are, young church. You are servants of Jesus Christ, like I am. You are people who are called of God into fellowship with himself, the effectual call of God whereby he works in us and brings us in. And the call is effective because you're eternally loved by God the Father and you are kept by Jesus Christ. You're, you're guarded by Jesus. You're sheltered by Jesus. He will see you safe unto the end. And thirdly, as you run after Jesus, as you treasure him, this, this mercy and peace and love will be lavishly multiplied in your life. Not just added, but multiplied. And then he says, in light of this, listen to verses three and four. He says, beloved, Although I wanted to, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude says, I, I wanted to 
write about our common salvation and glory in the forgiveness of sins and our adoption into the family of God by the work of Christ. I wanted to write to you about the wonder of the eternal love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for his people. But he said, I've been told of a situation that, that demands my attention, a situation that is disheartening and discouraging. He says, certain people have with stealth crept into the church. And these certain people are men and women who teach a, a view of sexuality that is squarely opposed to the scripture that says basically, may we sin on so that grace might be multiplied. And so he says, he says later he says, they are hidden reefs at your church. They're hidden reefs, they're right below the waterline. You're, you're in your boat and your boat hits and your boat shatters. They're hidden reefs. They're, they're blemishes at your love feast. He says, they're bad, they're bad. He says, so I, I appeal to you. I, the word there means to, I, I, I exhort you with all my heart. I appeal to you con, to contend, which means to struggle valiantly, to stand resolutely, to contend for the faith that has once and for all been delivered to the saints. Even in the early church, they had the gospels and the apostolic letters. He said, I want you to stand firm in this. Contend. The Baptist faith and message, which is in the worship guide, speaks of what the Bible should be for us. And it says this, that, that the Baptist faith, it says the Bible is a perfect repository of God's instruction. It, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. The, the trustworthiness and truth of scripture. And I'm gonna just cover two areas this morning. Number one, why is it difficult to contend and stand with courage? And number two, how do we do that? Just a couple of comments. So why is it difficult? Here's the first reason it's difficult is this. He says, certain people have crept into your fellowship, your church. These people were not nameless people living out there. These were people that they knew. These were their bosses, their co-workers, maybe their family members. This was maybe children, acquaintances, friends in the, in the body of Christ they've gotten to know, but they crept in unnoticed with stealth and they introduced this teaching that sexual issues are wide open, do what you want to do anytime you want to do it. And Jesus said, these people should be condemned. They've been designated for destruction. It's a strong word. See, it's difficult to stand when it involves real people that you stand against. You, just, you, have to, you sit down at a family dinner and say, as you talk, I've got to tell you, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I can't go there. I can't support you. I think you're wrong. And I think that lifestyle could lead to eternal judgment. I mean, that, that's when, it's, when you're condemning people way out there. You know, I've spoken frequently about the, the, the Chinese government and the communist Chinese government, how they're horribly treating the Uyghur people. That's way out there. I'm going to have to talk about a neighbor that I consider to be dear and I'm at loggerheads with because they're walking contrary to this book. That's hard. 
There's a little book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves, one of his three best books. And and what he says is that the agape love of Jesus waters and fertilizes the natural loves of affection and brotherly love and intimacy. He said, if you really want to have these loves to flower and flourish, then you water them with the agape love of Jesus. But the agape love of Jesus demands that Christ is supreme. And he quotes a poet from the 1600s named Richard Lovelace as an example. And he says that, he wrote a poem and he said, a man, a soldier is looking at his beloved and he says to her, I could not love you so much, dear, loved I not honor more. And Lewis says, just as in that poem, he's saying that that this warrior says that my commitment to being an honorable man and living with integrity in my calling makes me a better friend or lover to you. And he says, that's what happens. When we say that Christ is supreme, it makes the other loves flourish. So, so, So really, people who treasure Jesus love others better. That's why you come to a place in Luke chapter 14 that is an absolutely disarming statement where Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And people go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why would, you, why would you make that statement? Here's why it would. See, when Christ is supreme, we love better. When Christ is supreme in my life, I'm a better husband and father and brother and son. When Christ is supreme, all the other attitudes are, are water. But, but that, that's where you have to count the cost. So if I kowtow to public opinion or kowtow to a relationship and, and I deny Christ... I forfeited the power of the gospel in my life. I've become less than I should be. The second reason it's hard to stand is that, is that oftentimes, oftentimes, you're standing against the majority report. I mean, the sexual ethics in the day of the writing of the letter of Jude in the Greco-Roman world were wide open, just wide open. And so, so for, for Jude to take this stand and say, you've got to stand firm not going to be popular. I'm going to give you some historical examples. I think history just kind of preaches this, but so, so just bear with me. So John Calvin, born in 1509, one of the leaders of the Reformation, died in 1564 at the age of 54. Calvin spent his whole adult life ministering, except for three years where they kicked him out, in a place called Geneva, the beautiful city, Geneva, Switzerland. But when he, when he gets there, he's 27 years of age. Let me read this, this account. It says, when Calvin came to Geneva at the age of 27, he says, uh, in, in every city in Europe, men kept mistresses. A mistress is someone who's not your wife that you kind of hang out with for other reasons. When, when Calvin began his ministry in Geneva at the age of 27, there was a law on the books in Geneva that said a man could only have one mistress at a time. (laughs) Even after Calvin had been preaching as pastor for over 15 years, the immorality was was a plague, even in the church. Now, this is kind of P. 
PG-13, so I'm going to keep it tame. The libertines, that's what they were called, sexually libertines. The libertines boasted in their immorality. For them, the term, quote, communion of the saints, close quote. In the Apostles' Creed, we, last clause, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints. You got it? Okay. The communion of the saints meant the common possession of goods, houses, bodies, and wives. So they practiced adultery and indulged in sexual promiscuity in the name of Christ. And at the same time, they claimed the right to sit at the Lord's table. And the crisis came to a head in 1553, Calvinist 44. And what happened is Calvin kept addressing these people and addressing them and said, we've got to practice church discipline. They can't name the name of Jesus and live this way and this open flagrant adultery. And, and the elder board said, Amen. But there was a town council that supposedly, supposedly ruled the church. And, and so the town council, some of these libertines had some friends on the town council and they overturned what the elders said. And so the town council said, no, you, you, got, you got to let these people take the Lord's Supper. It's amazing. So, so that brooding came down. Calvin preaches a sermon. The Lord's table is right here in front of the pulpit. He goes down and, and, and as he gets ready to dispense the elements, as people come forward, some of these adulterers come down with their wives or girlfriends. And some of these guys would sit outside of Calvin's house and discharge weapons in the air and scream curses at him. It's tough. And they come down to take the Lord's Supper. And this is what happened. I'm going to read the account. Calvin threw his body on the Lord's table. And he says, these hands you may crush and these arms you may lop off. My life you may take and my blood is yours. You may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to you, the profane, and dishonor the table of my Lord Jesus Christ. And for some reason in their shame, they left and Calvin won the day. It's hard. It's hard. There's an old hymn that I just remember. It says, that, may I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? So when you stand for truth, it's going to be oftentimes against the majority report. Thirdly, you stand for the truth, it's going to be difficult, just difficult. You hear the term, he wants to, we should get on the right side of history. Let me give you some examples. And forgive me for being a historical nerd, but I'm going to give you some examples from history. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah in the Old Testament is, is, is a prophet during the fall of the southern kingdom, and they're taken into captivity into Babylon. So he, he's, God says, Jeremiah, I'm calling you. And, and he says, Jeremiah, they're not going to listen to you. And Jeremiah, he says, later, I don't want you to get married because your life is going to be so hard and difficult that I don't want to subject your wife to what you're going to go through. And they threw him in a well. They, they sent him out. They, they made fun of him. And to our knowledge, he had two people that listened to him, his secretary and a guy from Egypt. That's it. He's called the weeping prophet or the lonely prophet. And this, this guy who was not listened to, who was subject to ridicule, who was thrown into a, a mud pit during one of his times of greatest exposure and 
ridicule, wrote this in Jeremiah 15, verse 16, and it blows my mind. He says this, thy words were found and I ate them and your words became the delight of my heart. For I've been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And I'm going, wow. Your words were found, I ate them, and they became the joy and the delight of my heart. See, here's a guy who says, I've been called of God. I've got to stand. I've got to, I've got to speak it. I've got to speak it out. I've got to do it with dignity and grace and brokenness and appealing to people, but I've got to contend. Fast forward 800 years. There's a guy named Athanasius. I love Athanasius. 325 and following, there's a heresy in the early church called Arianism. And Arius said that Jesus wasn't eternal God. He was adopted by God when he saw, God saw he was a worthy man. And so he was not really eternally God. He was just adopted and and, and therefore, maybe he's one of many that have been adopted. And so we can live with that and make the gospel more palatable for all types of people. It's no big deal. And, and, and the, the Council of Nicaea in 325, without reservation, said that is heresy. Jehovah Witnesses are Arians. But there's a guy named Athanasius that came in right after that. He was bishop for uh, 45 years in Alexandria. 17 of the 45 years, the people got ticked off at him, the leadership did, and they forced him to flee into the desert. I mean, 17 out of 45 years, five different times, he flees to the desert. But he kept preaching the gospel and preaching the supremacy of Jesus and the eternal nature of Jesus. And he had a statement that became famous and it went like this, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. He said, I, 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 I've got to stand. I, I've, got, I've got to do this. You see, I'm sure the people said in his day, hey, Athanasius, get on the right side of history, man. This is progressive, it's ongoing, it's more friendly now. Just, get, just join us, be on the right side of history. It's no big deal. He says, no, my heart is bound to scripture. 1887, we'll go way forward. 1887, there's a guy named Charles Spurgeon, pastor in London. Spurgeon is at the end of his life. He's struggled with health issues, severe gout and depression as an adult, been marvelously used of God. And as he, as he sees the landscape of the British Baptists, they are adopting some new confessions and new statements. And basically the new statements are saying, we don't really need to preach some of this, but we need to talk about our experience and how we've experienced this. And Spurgeon says, no, you're going too far. Please don't do it. And he is involved in something that he called the downgrade controversy. They were downgrading doctrine, downgrading the beauty and the supremacy of the cross, downgrading this. He says, you're really preaching German theology that's been abandoned by God. It's coming here. Don't do it. And they voted Spurgeon out of the Baptist Union. He's an old man, almost just four years from his death. But this is what he said. This really moves me. He wrote a letter appealing to the Baptist of England and he said, when the doctrines of grace and the glorious atoning sacrifice are not clearly before men's minds so that they may feel their power. I love that. You preach the cross, you feel power. 
All sorts of evils will follow. It is, a, it is terrible to me that the dreadful blight should come upon our churches for the hesitating are driven to destruction and the weak are staggered and even the strong are perplexed. The false teachers of these days would, if they were even able to, try to deceive the elect of God. This makes our heart weighed down with sorrow. How can we not but speak against it? And he said, you know, people said, come on, Spurgeon, get on the right side of history. We're changing. It's not the old stuff. It's the new stuff. I'm sure Charles Spurgeon heard Jude saying, contend for the faith that's once for all been delivered to the saints. My last example. 1932, there is a report, 325-page report that is given that had been commissioned by John D. Rockefeller, maybe the most wealthy man in the history of the world. And they had the luminaries who wrote this report, people from all different denominations, and it was entitled Rethinking Missions, 1932. And basically what they said in this report what was that, was that um, um, we're beyond the preaching of the cross now. We, we, we just need to quit talking about the exclusive nature of Jesus and go places and just be a presence and be involved in good things. And these are good things, education and lifting up people from despair and, and caring for people. And this is what we need to do. We need to quit this the preaching of the cross. And many people stood up and said, this is marvelous. And there was a guy named Jay Gresham Mason, who's professor of Princeton Seminary, who said, this is, this is horrible. This is a denial of the gospel. We cannot go there. And he was opposed and ridiculed and thrown out of his denomination. He started Westminster Seminary. But it was, the aftermath was just the loss of the gospel as you see in all types of denominations today. There's a book that's been recently written called The Rise and Fall of Movements. Let me read a short paragraph. And he says that a shift has taken place over the last century in the Western understanding of God's mission to the world, i.e. the 1932 report. And the part we play in it, that shift has resulted in what we call missional fog, missional fog surrounding Western churches. Increasingly, mission is framed in political and social terms. We're fighting for economic justice and world peace or saving the planet or overcoming patriarchy and gender inequality and establishing kingdom businesses and growing organic vegetables. All these activities and causes have been classified as missions, but these are not the heartbeat of the gospel of Christ. And in the midst of this report, there was a man named uh, William Hawking, who was professor of philosophy at Harvard University for 40 years. And in that a report, an interview in Time Magazine, Professor Hawking said this. He said, the work of God is the work of God. And it is too holy to be touched by the intellect of man, close quote. That's baloney. That's just baloney. Be, beware of unbiblical false uh, humility. So you say that it's too holy to be touched by the intellect of man. I go, but Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, your mind. Paul says in Romans 1, says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4 talks about 
the mind. And it says this, starting in verse 17, it says, now, now this I say and testify in the Lord that, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not how you learned Christ. Your mind, your mind think well. G.K. Chesterton, the wit of the 20th or 19th century, early 20th century said, we, we, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication tables. What he's saying is that, is that you know, we're supposed to be modest about ourselves and our opinions and our attainments, but never modest about this. If the scripture teaches it, we stand with brokenness and love and dignity, but we stand. That's who we are. And don't talk about the things that God are too holy to be touched by the mind of man. This is communicated to thinking people who make application of daily living. So, how do we stand? Well, we think well. We read the Bible, and the Bible judges all religious conduct, creeds, and religious opinions. So it says the Baptist faith and message. We think well. We, we read life in light of Scripture. We, we worship well, individually and corporately, and we build community. So let me give you two disciplines. Two disciplines. Easy. Number one is this. If I'm to live well and think well and contend for the faith well that has once for all been delivered to the saints, what I do is when I get up in the morning, I make sure I'm awake. Me, I get some tea. I'm a tea drinker. I get my tea and then I take the Bible and I get in the Bible before I turn on the internet or before I read the newspaper. I'm here. And I get God's view. I, I push all my concerns, my job, in a closet. I lock the closet. They're going to come out in a minute. But I do this first. I get God's mind first. For example, I'll read the Psalm of the day. So today's the 18th. I'll read Psalm 18, 48, 78. Hopefully just that way you can cover the Psalms usually in two or three months. So this morning I was reading Psalm 18, which is a long Psalm. And one of the verses in Psalm, I think is verse 19 of Psalm 18 says, um, you brought me into a broad place because you delighted in me. My thought that I want to carry through the day is this. Almighty God, because you take joy in me, you delight in me, you brought me into a broad place, a good place. So I just carried that thought with me. I may write it down in a little journal, but I'm able to think 
that way. I, I don't let the world and the drumbeat of the world and the concerns of the world and this and that dictate my day exclusively. I try to go here first. So one discipline is, is, is the Bible before media. And there's a thousand Bible reading guides that you can use. I can give you several. The second is this, just very, is, is that Sunday is the day of worship. Sunday is a day of community building. I had a cup of tea or coffee with a guy a couple of weeks ago. And he was saying, you know, he said, let me tell you about my life. He says, I've got a pretty high pressure job. And so I get beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down. He says, I love Sunday. I come to church on Sunday and I see people that I care for and, and I read the Bible and I hear the Bible and I sing and I think and I'm able to see all types of people and I always leave God's worship energized and encouraged and ready to face the week. That's the way it's supposed to work. So, so I'm just saying, make Sunday. You get up in the morning and say, surf may be good, but it's worship time. We're going to church. We, we believe in being in the, with God's people on God's day. Let me tell you what happened to me. So this is two weeks ago. <clears throat> two weeks ago, that was our bulletin cover. We had combined worship. And so we're coming to church. Sarah's driving. <clears throat> and I say to her, you know, I, I just don't feel good today. And she said, well, what will you, you feel? I said, oh, I, I mean, physically, I think I'm just emotionally, I'm down. I said, I, I woke up real early and I'm thinking about this family and this couple and this situation. And it said, it just kind of crowded in on me. And I said, I just, I'm just, I don't, I don't I'm kind of down. She said, oh, it's bad. I said, tell you something else. Last couple of days, I'm, I'm not sure I like people anymore. And she said, you sat there for about five seconds. She said, you know, that's not a good thing for a pastor to say. You know, it just didn't. You, you can't say that. And I said, I know, I know. So I get to church. I walk on the campus, see some people. How you doing? Good to see you. And I, I thought, yeah, it's just good to see people. We're going to worship. And they, we read Psalm 46. And then we sing, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. I, mean, I just love that hymn. I, mean, I just think it's a great hymn. And, and so we do that. And then we sing, my, my, I think my favorite modern day Christian song in the last 20 years by the Gettys in Christ alone. There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Yeah, and then bursting forth, and up in the grave, he rose again. Yeah, yeah. And then we did, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm feeling it. I'm getting it. And, and then, we did, then we did the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I said, yeah. That's who we are. And then we sang Quarterstone. And I'm really energized. And then I'm ready to preach. Man, I'm ready. I'm lifted. So you see, I, it was a joy and a delight to be here. You, you, you come in and you look around and, and you, you just see, you get encouraged. You see, you see Brian and you're encouraged and you see Joe and you're encouraged. You see Sean and you're very discouraged, but you go back and look at Brian again and, and Joe and these guys. And uh, no, seriously, it's just it's good to be, to see these little kids that are going to be future champions. You go, wow. So. Wall Street Journal had a cover story this week. 
Entitled, it was entitled, U.S. Drug Overdose Deaths Soared Nearly 30% in 2020 Driven by Synthetic Opioids. This year, we had uh, 93,331 deaths, or last year, a 30% rise in deaths from drug overdose. And I just thought about the COVID crisis. And, and I, I, I would say that a 30% increase, I think a 30% increase in marital issues. I think a 30% increase in devastating issues with children. I think a 30% increase on, on isolation and loneliness and despair and depression. I think we're going to reap some really difficult things from this very, very bad 16 months we've just been through. And, and I came away from this saying, I need community. I, I need community. I, I need, here's a new phrase. I need in-person worship. You've heard that? And you see, in, I say, what does in-person worship mean? Does that mean we're aliens if we don't do it, you know? So I need to be with God's people. I need to laugh and listen and weep and pray. I saw a dear man before the first service, and he said, you know, can, you, can I talk to you? So I come here occasionally. My wife is COVID, and she's not. She has COVID, and she is not doing well. She's really not. She's not. She's I kind of got teary-eyed, and I just stopped and prayed for him. I said, that, 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 that's, then let me, so, so let, let me just say this. In-person worship is very important. In fact, let, let me, I'm not speaking, let me speak to you on Zoom right now. You Zoom people. Come to church. I mean, COVID's in the rearview mirror. Get yourself here. Now, if you're infirm and can't make it and you're compromised, I understand that. But if you're sitting there in your pajamas drinking your Starbucks that you just went to get and you say, it's really cool to do this, you get here. I mean, it's time, to, it's time to come back. It's time to get with people and laugh and pray and sing and weep with people. You need it. So get here. In the last service, I said, it's, it's, it's 1029. You can get in your car and a lot of you can get here by 11 o'clock. So get here. Because, because we need the community of people. I had a football coach that incredibly impacted me in high school. He, he lived down the street. I knew him all my young life. And he was a tough guy. I mean, I trembled when I was around him. And he, he hated tie football games. Now, back in the old days where there was sudden death, a lot of times you'd have ties. You know, you'd, the game is tied and it's over. You don't have sudden death. You go home. And, and I mean, my sophomore year, we were seven, two, and one. And the one kept us from going through the state playoffs. And he said, well, he said, I, I hate tie football games. And he said, I'm going to quote Frank Howard. He loved Frank Howard, who was coaching Clemson for 40 years. He said, a tie football game is like kissing your girlfriend goodnight through a screen porch door. Okay. If you've never done that, try it. It's not any fun. It's not any fun. You're kissing your girlfriend goodnight through a screen porch door. I need the body of Christ. I need to be with people. I need it. And you do too. Well, that's it. The Bible before media and Sunday worship. I was talking to my son last night. My son, his wife, and kids are here from California. And he said some things that thrilled my heart. One thing that I didn't like, but he said, you know, Dad, we, you know, they moved to, to California from Washington State a year, a year or two weeks ago. And they got there in the middle of COVID. And 
They have not had in-person worship until very recently. California, the People's Republic of California just opened their churches recently. And uh, they're going to worship. And he says, Dad, I, I desperately have needed worship. He says, I need people around me who love the Lord to help me understand and raise my children. They got three children. I really need the body of Christ. And I said, my heart was just singing. And then he said this, I don't care what they say from the pulpit. I've got to be with God's people. I said, don't go that far. No, don't go there. Let's go with the first part. And he's absolutely right. So how do you stand strong? You're here. You're here. And you're in community. Community that walks you and encourages you and builds you up. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day that you've given us and a day, a day just to walk in the halls and see people and smile and be together. A, a day to open the Bible and to learn from you. A day to think together. And, and, and I thank you that you called us to do that. So make us people who understand the importance of thinking well. In that regard, let us do the Bible before the media. Make us people understand the importance of this day, this Lord's day. And we praise you for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.